the infallible, inspired, and errant word of God, 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. May God add His rich blessing to the reading of His word. Father, cause your face now to shine upon us, your servants, and that in the shining of your face upon us, may the Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts and our minds and the understanding of your holy word, and that we would hear the solemn warning of the Lord Jesus Christ coming as a thief, and that we would also take joy in the certain hope which is set before us in a new heaven and new earth. And may we, O oh Lord, and learn to live and frame our lives according to the inspired truth you've revealed in this word. All this we ask through Christ. Amen. You may pass it. We come back to our passage here in First Peter, or rather Second Peter chapter 3. And you'll notice that we're winding down in our exposition of this book. And this morning what I want us to do as we chart our way towards the end of this chapter, I want us to just take uh, one message and look at what Peter says about the end of the age. Next week, Lord willing, as we wrap up our series on this grand book, we're going to uh, talk about how the Lord directs us to live in light of these circumstances. But Peter here, in in a way that's, um, that's perhaps more clear than many other passages in Scripture, which includes a number of details about the second coming unfolds for us what we have to look for and what we are to be waiting and watching for in terms of the Lord's coming. Now, as we connect this passage back to the previous, you'll notice that what leads Peter to expound upon the topic of the coming of the Lord is the fact that there are false teachers in the church who are making a claim that the Lord will not return. Remember, Seeing that in verse 3, he said, In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lusts, and they will be saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And so there you have it. There is the reason why the Apostle Peter takes up the grand theme of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because Christians, in the name of Christ, are preaching that He will not return. And you remember that that proclamation of theirs rested on a particular premise, and that premise was that the future will be like the past. The future will be like the past. And they argue that in the past, God did not intervene. You see that in the latter part of verse 4. All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That is the past, according to them. That God has not intervened since the moment He created and fashioned the heavens and the earth. And they said, because God has not intervened, God will not intervene in the future. Now, Peter addresses that particular problem, refutes it, 
in a thoroughgoing way in verses 5 through 7, and then he takes on the illustration that they used as proof of their position. Remember, the future will be like the past. God did not intervene in the past. And the proof that God will not come in the future, the proof that their principle is sound, is what he says in verse 8. Do not let this escape your notice, beloved. The Lord, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for you to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And you see there, the false teachers were saying, see, here is the aha, here is the gotcha. God has not returned yet, Jesus Christ has not come, as he has promised, therefore we know with certainty that God will not intervene in the future. And so Peter takes that particular idea on and he turns that fact on his head and he says, don't you worry about the fact that Jesus hasn't come. It's 2,000 years later. Don't you worry about that because with the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day and the Lord is not slow like you think is slow because God is above man and his temporal category. He's just not wanting anybody to perish. Now you have to read this proclamation of the second coming with that backdrop in view. You have false teachers in the background. And secondly, you have Peter saying, God hasn't come back yet because he's not wishing for any to perish. Now I know some of you are going to say that sounds like mealy mouth Calvinism. On one hand, you boldly proclaim that God is a sovereign God. God has predestined the exact number of people who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. But let's not out-Calvin God. Let's not out-Calvin God. Although we have a certain declaration in the Scriptures that God has foreordained every event that will come to pass, we also have passages in Scripture where you certainly have God saying that He has no pleasure in the death of wicked people. That God is patient, that God is long-suffering, that God is a God of love. These things are not contradictory. And you have to read the terrible news about Christ coming, in a sense, in, in, in terms of that backdrop. Every time we hear the fact that God in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return, and that He is going to return in judgment, and that He is going to come and bring purifi- uh, purifying fires to the world. We, all, we should always be alarmed in a sense, right? Because it's a terrible day. The prophets talk about this. Don't, don't, don't look gleefully for it in a sense because it's going to be a day that brings misery. It's going to be a day that brings a weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's going to be a day that is full of difficulty for the world. And so we don't want anybody to fall through the cracks, as it were. We want people to be admonished. We want people to be called to faith. We want people to be led to Jesus Christ. But as much as we want to balance it in that way, we still have to come back to the passage, and we still have to come back to the proof that Peter lays out. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. And you see the certainty of that in verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The day will come. Now I just want to take a moment to make a quick point here. You'll see here, 
That, that coming day is called the day of the Lord. It's called the day of the Lord. Now you look back at verse 4, and what is implied is the coming day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it says in verse 4, they are saying, where is the promise of His coming? Whose coming are we referring to? Well, it's obvious that they are referring to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the very same uh, promise and phrase that Peter refers to back in chapter 1 and verse 16. It says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Peter has been proclaiming that there is a day of Jesus Christ that is coming. The false teachers are rejecting that, saying, where is the promise of His coming? Now in verse 10, Peter says that that day of Jesus Christ is now the day of the Lord. But then I want you to look at verse 12, where it says, looking for and hastening the coming day of God. So now we have this day referred to in three different ways. The day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord, and the day of God. So there must be three different days, right? That's what dispensationalism teaches, that the day of Jesus Christ is the day of the rapture. And so the faithful are exhorted in dispensational churches today that they are to look for the day of Jesus Christ, and that's when people are going to just be uh, dragged out of their office cubicles, or from their homes, or from the ball fields, or wherever they are, and they're going to be drawn up into the heavens, and they're going to miss the great seven-year tribulation that's the day of Jesus Christ. And then the day of the Lord is when the day when uh, Jesus Christ as God comes to usher in the great tribulation and then the millennium and then finally the day of God according to that particular scheme is the eternal state. Now I want you to notice that the word of God just simply does not allow for that kind of breaking up of the scriptures. Now to be sure it's a debating point. So maybe you're not interested in this. But it is our responsibility to interpret the scriptures correctly. It is our responsibility to tell people the truth about what God's Word says. It is our responsibility to be as clear as we possibly can be, especially in the issue of the second coming of Christ, because there is all kinds of fantastic, elaborate, mythological kind of proclamation and fictional representation of the coming of the Lord. It's everywhere around us. Our job as a church is to accurately interpret the Scripture, and the beginning of the accurate interpretation of the Scripture is to see that there are not three days or five different days or six different comings of Christ. There's one. Let's be clear about that. So the world's not confused, and so we're not confused. There's one coming. It says, the day of the Lord... And then Peter says, will come. Now that's a verb, it's in the future tense, and it's the very first word in verse 10. It's as if Peter is tired now. Of walking and treading around the truth here. He's talked about the false teachers with their uh, fantastic explanations and criticisms of the Word of God and, and the factual truth that Christ is going to come in glory. And finally in verse 10, Peter hammers it. He says, We'll come the day of the Lord. We'll come with certainty. I want you to notice that that day is certain to come 
And that day is a day activated by God. It is a day activated by God, and that's a very important point that we need to proclaim to the world around us in its rank unbelief. I talk to any secular unbeliever around you, and there is almost no one who will believe that there is a coming day of the Lord. It has been now reinterpreted to be the coming doomsday of global warming and its effects. But nobody believes in a personal intervention of God. Nobody believes that God is coming again in the flesh to put an end to human history. Not even people in the church. The famous 20th century German theologian and biblical scholar Rudolf Bultmann said the mythical eschatology of the New Testament is untenable. Untenable. Because history did not come to an end as every schoolboy knows it and will continue to run its course. And then he goes on to say, even if we believe that the world as we know it will come to an end in time, we expect the end to take the form of a natural catastrophe and not a mythological event as the New Testament expects. You see, the church has been helping the world in its unbelief. And so now the world would arrogantly reject not only the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in person, in glory, to end time, it is substituted a man-made idea. But it's not God who's going to bring the end of the age. It's man. Notice how the whole paradigm has been turned upside down and inside out, and now the creature is worshipping the creature and not the creator. The creature thinks he is so mighty and so powerful and so omnipotent that it's not God who would bring the end of history, because after all, God is in his box, he is in the heavens if he exists, and he is too weak and too impotent to affect anything like a cosmic end of the world in catastrophe. Only man is able to do that. And it's really strange how you have these doomsday, uh, these parallel doomsday scenarios juxtaposed. On the one hand, you have the websites of the Dispensationalist Prophecy Watch and Olive Tree Ministries and Rapture Index and almost every kind of website you can imagine where they're monitoring who the Antichrist is and what his activities are and uh, the bank accounts and what's going on with the European Union and, and, and with every news flash and new interpretation of the possible coming of Christ, it has this really fevered, uh, really melodramatic pitch to it. And on the other hand, uh, the secularists who say there is no God and there is no intervention, on the other hand, are just as uh, melodramatic about their predictions of the imminence of, of the coming into the world due to global warming. Fascinating. Every time there's a 100 degree day, you have uh, all kinds of warning about the specter of the end of the world due to uh, a man's environmental impact. But in light of all of this, let's not miss the obvious truth here. Now Peter says God is going to come. The end of the world is going to come. 
And he says, it's going to come as a thief. The day of the Lord will come as a thief. What Peter means by that is you have no idea when it's going to be. of the fact that you have people with their Bibles in one hand and the newspaper in the other confidently proclaiming to you that they know the day and the hour of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, at least for His saints, in rapture, we have no idea when the Lord will return. Peter says He will come like a thief, and the idea of the metaphor is with suddenness and unexpected, and at a time when we're not watching. And you know, it's not that Peter says that, it's Jesus who says that, that He will come like a thief in the night. It's Paul who says that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that He will come as a thief. The Word of God continually warns us not to speculate, not to set dates, uh, and not to be able to proclaim to predict the coming end of the Lord. And yet, if you look at church history in the last two centuries, you see one prediction after the other. William Miller, the founder of the Millerite movement, predicted that Jesus would come on March 21st, 1843. And when he did not come, Miller predicted October 22, 1844. This is entitled The Great Disappointment because so many Christians sold their property, all their possessions, quit their jobs, and rallied on a hillside to usher in the return of the Lord. Well, that didn't stop people. Ellen White stood up in 1850 and predicted on June 27th that the time was at hand. She said, my accompanying angel has said, time is almost finished. Get ready, get ready, get ready. Joseph Smith gathered together the leaders of the Latter-day Saints and he said that on 1891, February 15th, God would return. 1914, Jehovah's Witness, the Watchtower Society, claimed that the end of the world would come. Then 1915, then 1918, then 1920, 1925, 1941, 1975, and 1994, and it's still counting, they're predicting the end of the world. Herbert Armstrong, the founder of the Worldwide Church of God, predicted the day of the Lord would happen sometime in 1936. And when he was proven wrong, he changed and recalculated and estimated 1975. Chuck Smith, the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California, predicted the rapture on May of 1981. When he was proven wrong, he shuffled the date to December 31, 1981. Pat Robertson of the 700 Club and TBN predicted that the world would end in the fall of 1982. Hal Lindsey predicted in the late great planet Earth that the rapture was coming in 1988. One generation or 40 years after the creation of Israel. 1994, September, Harold Camping predicted the end of the world. 1999, Jerry Falwell told about 1,500 people at a pastor's conference in Tennessee that the second coming would come within 10 years. Now, all of this confident boasting about knowing when the Lord would return and contrast that now to what Jesus said. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man. Why? Because the Word of God says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
only fools and false teachers claim to know. And one thing we can confidently say about every person who was named on the list of names, and we could add plenty more to it, is that the Word of God says, without reservation, in Deuteronomy 18, that if somebody predicts a thing in the name of the Lord and it does not come to pass, they are a false prophet and to be ignored. Brothers and sisters, we live in a church world that is full of false prophets and false teachers predicting things in the name of the Lord they know nothing of. But what we do know here is that the Lord will come. The Lord will come. He will come like a thief in the night. And that means we're called to be ready. That means we're called to be ready. There's three things that the Lord is going to do when He returns. You see that's the latter half of verse 10 now. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The first effect of the coming of the Lord, Peter, uh, says here, which I'm going to begin with, is at the very end of verse 10, where it says, its works will be burned up. Now, I hope what you have in your translation is a footnote. Because mine says with that word, burned up, that there is another manuscript with a different word here, which is not burned up, but discovered. The two oldest manuscript traditions that we have both have this word and the best explanation for the fact that that word is there is the fact that that's the original word because it doesn't make any sense why somebody would change that. That's a lot more difficult word that was there. It does, and it says something very distinct here about what's going to happen. It says the works will be discovered. The works will be discovered. They will be found. And what Peter is saying by that, that word has judicial overtones to it, that word, found or discovered, indicates that there is a time when God is going to lay bare the works of men. Peter's talking about judgment. He's saying when the Lord comes as a thief in the night, He's coming to bring the judgment that is prepared by God for people who have resisted his rule. All kinds of pictures of that judgment day. Jesus describes it in Matthew 25. He says, When the Son of Man comes in glory with all of his holy angels, he will sit on his throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So a pastoral picture a domesticated version of what will happen when Jesus comes. Contrast that now to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now listen to the description of the one who brings judgment. His eyes were like a flame of fire. 
On his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, that it would strike the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Not a domesticated version. This is the high definition director's cut version of what will happen when Jesus comes as judge. And he comes as somebody who is impartial bearing the standard of truth, which is the sword coming out of his mouth. And you see that pictured in a different form in Revelation chapter 20 when it says, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place before them. And notice what happens here when Jesus Christ comes as that victorious white horse rider described in Revelation 19. The whole world trembles so much at his presence that John can describe it from a different angle in Revelation 20 saying, the heavens and the earth fled from him because of his holiness. But then listen to the description of the judgment scene. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and the books were opened and they were judged according to their works. That's what Peter is talking about here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 when he says the works will be laid bare. Jesus describes that. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says that every idle thought will be judged. That is, every lazy, stray idea. God regards even that, uh, that small or insignificant of a thing, even the lazy, stray, idle thoughts, Jesus declares will be judged. Paul says, that the Lord, when He brings this judgment, will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and He'll reveal the counsels of the heart. You see, not just what you did in secret. Not just the things that only you know about. And not just the thing that maybe you and one other person know about and, and you've managed to keep it away from everybody else. But but, but Paul says here that even the secret thoughts of the heart. Imagine what an uncomfortable day that is that John describes here in Revelation chapter 20 when the dead great and small are standing before the great white throne which is so enormously holy that the presence of the earth and the heaven flee from him. Now you're standing there quivering before the Lord Almighty and him exposing not just the deeds done in darkness, but the very thoughts thought in darkness. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, Peter declares he will lay bare before the world the darkness of the sinful work. Now I can't help but wanting the gospel when I hear that. 
Jesus better be more to me than self-help therapy. Jesus better be more to me than an inspiring, motivating figure who helped me to live a better life. I hope you get that this morning here. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply about trimming around the edges of your life and cleaning yourself up and helping you land that six-figure job that you always wanted. The Jesus that you need is the Jesus that is described here in Revelation 20 as the one who sits on the great white throne before whom all the books are opened up and he now sits as judge. You need a Jesus who can stand in as a mediator between the law and the judgment and the justice of God. And as that evil is exposed, have those sins recorded there transferred to his account and have the righteousness of that perfect Christ given to you in exchange. Now let's not turn the day of the Lord into this fantastic, interesting, um, left-behind series kind of idea. What kind of crazy, funny things are going to happen when Christ returns? What's going to happen when Christ returns is that He's going to come again as a judge. And you've got to have a Savior who can justify you. I pray that every person here this morning knows that Christ. Because the only way to be delivered from that kind of of justice and judgment, which is going to be so excruciatingly painful just to go through, not to mention the effects of eternity in hell, is this Jesus is proclaimed in the Word of God as the justifier so he's coming, Peter says, back to Second Peter 3. And here's what he's going to bring. It's said from different angles in your passage. But the clear truth of what's said here from three, at least three different angles is that he's going to destroy the heavens and the earth. Look at it. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. And then it says that the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And then verse 12 says that because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. And then verse 7 we're told that the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. And then we read of, uh, of the heavens and the earth and the islands and the oceans fleeing from the presence of God in Revelation chapter 20. So we have all of these different angles and then we have other ways of it being described. There's a skull that was rolled up, torn to pieces, and thrown away. From whichever angle you look at this from, what Peter is saying, what the Word of God is uniformly saying, is that when Christ comes again, there is going to be a a massive uh, scale of destruction which we've never seen the like of before. And and whether that is just simply um, a poetic way of describing uh, the lifting off of the curse or the unveiling of the spiritual realities which are, are dueling against each other throughout human history, I simply don't know. 
But I certainly get the impression that things that seem to be so permanent and the permanent order and arrangement of things that we experience day in and day out is, is somehow going to be disturbed. Jesus says the sun and the moon are going to go dark and the stars are going to fall out of those heavens in, in Matthew 24. It's simply the language of calamity. And you know, I couldn't help but think about that as I'm watching the TV all week long last week. I can't help but think about what's described here because every time you turn around we have an Action 7 report from this canyon. We have an Action 4 report from Channel 4 News over here in Malibu. And then we have the next scene which is up in, in Big Bear, Running Springs or Lake Arrowhead and then Orange County and then North San Diego County and everywhere you turn the winds are shifting and whipping and the fire is going out of control and because the winds are out of control the tankers can't fly and, and because people weren't prepared there's not enough firemen in place there's not enough water there's not enough trucks. And nobody can seem to put this fire out. And it seems to me that that's just a pitiful symbol, really, of what Peter talks about here. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And it just simply says, going to mouth. I don't know what all that means, other than it sounds a lot worse than what we went through last week. And that was bad. Jesus is going to come. Jesus is going to come in judgment. And Jesus is going to come and bring some pretty terrifying destruction with him. But it's not all negative news. I I guess that's what I want us to see also. It's not all negative news. The message and the proclamation of Jesus coming and the kind of destruction that it will come in its wake is really now tempered a bit. Not, not really even tempered, but, but some new wonderful element is added to it. In verse 13 it says, But, but, contrast. Now we have a pretty... Dim, dark, an optimistic message. And then now 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now remember, there's a frame around all of this here. The frame around the proclamation of the coming day of judgment is, is God being patient so no one has to endure the judgment. Right? The other frame around this passage is the frame that Peter gives us in verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in all holy, holy conduct and godliness? You see, Peter gives you two different horizons about the day of judgment. On the one hand, there is uh, the terror of the day, the certainty of it's going to come, and the terror that's, that's involved with that. A judgment of the dissolution of the heavens and the earth as we understand it. In light of these things, Peter is saying, this ought to shape the way you live. And we're going to talk about that next week. But it's not just negativity. It's hope. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. 
Now turn with me to a passage in the Old Testament. I, I, I want us to tie something together here that's going to take a couple of steps. But uh, it's Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. And you know how I love to hear those pages turn on Sunday mornings when I ask you to turn to a text. So uh, open it uh, and find it in your Bibles for me here. I want to tie a couple of ideas here together. I, I think one thing that we want to ask of Peter when he says uh, that Christ is going to bring with him or activate the new heavens and the new earth, well, where in the world does such an idea come from? And as you're turning there, maybe I can just give you a little um, backdrop to sort of fill this in, but it seems to me that all the language you have in the New Testament describing redemption in terms of the language of creation... Uh, we're being given ways of, of looking back at, at what God had originally planned and what God had originally done. A man was made good. He was made in God's image and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And man was given this mandate to subdue and conquer and take dominion over the earth. And certainly he still has that as his calling. But it's, it's really... Uh, man, there's a real drag on that now because of sin and the fall. But it appears that what God had in view from the beginning of creation is a world dominated by righteousness and a world cultivated and subdued and used to the glory of God. No pain, no sorrow, no frustration, just, just man using his God-given wisdom and knowledge and ability to cultivate the earth for the full glory of God. You see this unfolded in prophetic ways. Uh, going back to the covenant of promise with Abraham, how God had promised Abraham to give him uh, the land of Canaan. And, and the Word of God tells us later on in the New Testament that as you look back on that promise of the inheritance, that it was really a sign and seal of something far more enormous than that. Because Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham, while he was living in the land of Canaan in a tent, looked forward to something far greater than Canaan itself. That he looked toward a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker was the Lord. And then finally you get this language in, in prophecy in the Old Testament of something that's going to be great. Something that's going to come in the future in which uh, creation will completely be transformed. But now here you have the specific language that, that I'm interested in, Isaiah 65, 17. Where God says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. See that? New heavens and new earth. It's as if Peter has picked up that language now, and he has he's applied it directly to the effect which Christ will bring when he comes again in glory. Look at the bottom part of your passage here. It says, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. The youth will die at the age of 100. The one who does not reach the age of 100 will thought to be accursed. Uh, verse 19, for instance, says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. And verse 21 says, They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build another and another inhabit. You see this? It, basically what God is describing here 
in temporal terms, in terms that would be familiar with these people. God is describing uh, eternity. God is describing the consummation of the kingdom of God. It's that new heavens and new earth. And Peter picks that up now, and he uses that. And he says, there's, there's not just something dark and dramatically awful that's going to happen when Christ returns as, as judge. It's going to be something glorious and hope-filled. The new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the, the point that I want to tie a couple things here together. First of all, I wanted to say that what Peter is doing by applying that language is he's showing us how to read your Bible. You go back to the Old Testament and you see these prophecies of creation redeemed and transformed beyond your wildest imagination so that, um, so that the, the sheep and the wolf can, can play together without harming each other. Where the child can go and, and stand by the den of a cobra and not get bitten and, and the venomous uh, poison of the snake uh, kill him. You have all of these descriptions of, of just marvelous things that are not really happening today because they can't because of the fall. Well, what's happening in those prophetic foreshadowings is the message of hope that Christ returns as Messiah when He institutes the kingdom of God with power and victory. This is what we look forward to. A new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A forever with the Lord. I want to close this morning. That's, our, that's one application of this, is that this is how you read your Bible when you come across those passages in the New Testament. It is not talking about a future millennium here on earth, whether it's the dispensational kind, the premillennial kind, or even the postmillennial kind. Christ is not going to come as king and reign on a mountain in Jerusalem somewhere, and they're going to reinstitute the tabernacle and the, the temple and the sacrifices and all that and, and, and so forth for a thousand-year millennium. The idea that there's this golden age ahead for the church where, where Christ is still in heaven and everything's going to be glorious and wonderful and hardly any sickness, everybody's going to be rich and healthy on the post-millennial version is not true either. We don't have time to refute all of that. What we're trying to do is show you how that prophetic language of the Old Testament is picked up here and interpreted by the apostles to say, here's what it means. It means heaven. The kingdom of God is is the fulfillment of those prophetic foreshadowing. But there's something else here I want us to see for our encouragement. If Peter means to use this language as an encouragement to us for living, and we'll have to come back to that next week, we need to walk away this morning encouraged by what these things tell us. Revelation 21, I promise the last passage we'll turn to this morning. Revelation 21. And we're going to work here particularly with the new heaven and new earth language and we're all done, so just hang with me and look at it so you can walk away this morning. Not just alarmed at the kind of uh, dramatically catastrophic, difficult things that will come. But the fact that there's joy in Christ's coming. There's hope in what Christ is going to do. Revelation 21.1 says, I saw a new heaven and new earth. Same language of Peter used. We're referring to the very same event. 
incursed, fallen, worn out, beat down, corrupt creation that, that we've subjected to, uh, all these diseases and problems and distortions on account of our sin is going to be completely replaced with this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They will be His people. God Himself will be among them. And then verse 4. The same language you read in Isaiah chapter 65 about new heavens and new earth. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first thing has passed away. And now is not the time for in-depth exposition of this passage. I'm just going to give you the bullet point. The new heavens and the new earth, most likely from everything we can read here, you see the new prefix here, does not mean brand new, it means renewed. To the best of our knowledge, the new heavens and the new earth is a rejuvenated world that we have around us, stripped away of all the terrible effects of sin. And within that new heaven and new earth, it says, I saw the holy city coming down from God. That's the glorified church right in the midst of new creation. The whole church in peace and harmony and unity, enjoying and experiencing the new heavens and new earth. Verse 3, it says, the tabernacle of God is among men. What is John saying? He's saying, now the covenant promise is finally fulfilled to its ultimate form. And that covenant promise to its ultimate form in the Old Testament always talked about God making us His people and Him dwelling in the midst of us. And John is saying, in heaven, this is what it is. The permanent dwelling place of God with men. He is at the center of the life and the activity of this new world. Forever will we be with the Lord and will be free from all of the painful devastating consequences of sin. No more tears. No more sorrow. No more death. No more pain. You see, that's, that's the rest that Christ is going to bring when He comes. Judgment. Dissolution of things as we know it today. The renewal. Rest and peace. Now this is what um, our faith is to focus on this morning. That the full outworking of our redemption is not simply that we have a new record. Not simply that we have sin stripped away from us and its pollution and its effects. But the fullness of redemption is what God wants us to walk away from here today with. That man with all of the new heart and a new life and a new body and the fullness of a new world with Christ as its center. And that's the glorious hope that lies before you. And it's on account of these things Peter says we are to live accordingly in a fallen world with sinful bodies, broken hearts, experiencing broken promises. There's something glorious awaits us. May God help us to lay hold of the, the rich promises of His Word about the 
the wondrous things that he will affect uh, when he comes. And in the meantime, may God help us uh, be watching, preparing and waiting uh, for that uh, glorious return of Christ. Let's